Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. One of the many fears this pandemic has magnified is that we cannot possibly focus on our careers and work at the highest level while also having time to be parents and partners and well-rounded individuals, right? Well, with the transition to working from home, navigating this challenge has now become even more complicated. Today, I am talking with ACE editor Farrell Levy, who has worked at a high level her whole career, moving between features and television, working on shows like Nashville, NYPD Blue, and Criminal Minds, to name just a very, very select few. She was already a single mom when she got her start in the business, so she has spent many, many years perfecting the balancing act between these two. To say that she is passionate about advocating that family and career are not mutually exclusive would be a vast understatement. Her passion comes from having successfully balanced the two for much of her career while also mentoring many others in the business that are working hard to do the same as her. In Farrell's own words, she firmly believes that you can be proud of the work that you do and also proud of the fact that you have had a good life. Farrell and I dive deep into the topic of work-life balance in Hollywood, as well as many other topics, including mentorship, burnout, and choosing the right jobs to match your personal needs. If you are a parent struggling to choose the next step in your career because you believe it just cannot be done, please listen to Farrell before believing that you can't, because she and I are both convinced that you absolutely can. All right, without further ado, my conversation with Ace Editor Farrell Levy. I'm here today with Farrell Levy, who is a longtime film and television editor. You've worked on such shows as NYPD Blue, Criminal Minds, Damages, Nashville, one of my favorite films of all time, Primal Fear. But more importantly, for today's conversation, you've also been a working mother your entire career in Hollywood. And you, like me, work incredibly hard to achieve some semblance of work-life balance. 
Farrell, it is such a pleasure to have you on the microphone today. Thank you so much for taking your time and sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. Well, this is one of my favorite uh, topics to talk about because it's 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 real life. And, um, you know, I think in the past, uh, this was actually sort of considered a soft, not sexy topic. Um, and granted, there are people that does not this does not apply to, but I think uh, there's much, much more awareness now. And I think people are also seeing that it is sort of a matter of like real, real survival. Um, you know, you, we, we don't want burnout. And I think more and more people are appreciating the deleterious effects of working too much and what it does physically, mentally, and, um, you know, and family-wise. Well, there's no question in my mind that even today, this is still very much a struggle. And those that are able to balance work and life and children and being parents and working in Hollywood, it seems like it's impossible today. I can only imagine that 30 or 40 years ago, it probably wasn't any easier than it is now. I've had several conversations with people talking about, well, how different are things? Like I talked to Walter Murch and Carol Littleton and really getting a picture of this evolution. And one of the things that they say is it really wasn't that different. I'm sure you've probably heard people that would uh, hearken back to the film days, say, oh, well, you would, you would order a dissolve and get to go home at 3.30 in the afternoon and wait for that dissolve to be processed by the lab. And because of technology, things are moving so much more faster and there's so much more to do, but they were still working really long, crazy hours 30, 40, 50 years ago in the film world, they just might not have been moving as quickly, but they were still working just as hard or even harder. So let's start by going way back to the beginning, where your career started, what it is that you were working on and what it was like so we can really get a sense of the trajectory of how things have changed or if they haven't as far as work-life balance in the industry are concerned? Well, uh, I probably did this in a crazy way because I actually had my child and then decided that I wanted to go into the film business. But uh, in those days, in New York, I was in New York at the time, and I think to a certain degree, it's still possible. Film school was not an absolute must in terms of uh, getting your way into the cutting room. And I, and I was able to get a paid intern part-time. And my husband at the time had said to me, look, you know, if you can make enough money to pay the babysitter, uh, that's fine. And so they knew my situation. I was an intern and it, it turned out to be a job where the editor was a jack of all trades. And I learned everything from sound editing to sinking dailies to, you know, all, all the basic assistant skills. And at one point, um, a film came in, we, we, we worked in the, um, it's not Duart. Was it Duart? It was the lab way, way over by the uh, on the west side. And a job came in, and I was assigned to sync all the dailies of this particular movie. And then they were they were looking. I was not in the union. I was working part time. They were looking for uh, an apprentice who knew the film. And because I was doing all the dailies, um, this particular editor saw his role as someone that nurtured people and then it was time to leave the nest. And he said, Farrell, you know, they're looking for someone. I think it'd be appropriate for you to, to join the team. You could join the union that way. And uh, that was how I, uh, and I, at that point, my daughter had been in daycare long enough and um, I had a good babysitter and I joined the editing team, joined the union, turned out to be Miramax's first film called The Burning. And we had Mr. Harvey in our editing room in all of his, uh, you know, obnoxious glory. Uh, and uh, but it was my it was my first uh, first editing experience uh, in the union as an assistant. 
And the other thing that, ha- that I felt for me personally was because, oh, and they also said to me, no overtime, which was exactly what I needed. And, um, but I felt that I was working at a deficit because there were no other people I knew that had little kids at home. And even though they were aware of it, I felt that I had to work that much harder to prove myself and prove that, yes, you could have a child at home and still do the job. And uh, that was pretty much the, the story of, of my, my career for many, many years. Uh, this is a sense of need. You need to prove yourself as, as someone that's just starting out, period. But I felt that I had to prove myself that much harder because I had to show people that you could have a little one at home and still do the job. Um, what I learned from that was that I would then try very hard to get onto jobs where they were not going to require overtime. And that actually pretty much worked out for me. I mean, they, I wouldn't tell people that I had a child initially. In fact, I sort of felt like I was, I was literally in the closet about it. Uh, and then gradually, as I, when I get the job, most editors, male actually, were very, very uh, warm to the idea. And in fact, one editor, Eric Albertson, said to me, if I had known you had a child, I would have hired you much earlier. But anyway, um, I... When they would say no over time, I would say, oh, okay, fine. But I would secretly be going, yeah. Oh, shucks, right? <laughs> Bummer, that's too bad. Right, right, right. So I think part for me, um, I made a choice. And my choice was I wanted to work. Working uh, was very fulfilling to me. I, I loved doing the editing. I loved doing, you know, being in this world. But if I was going to do it, I was going to have to make a choice to perhaps not take on some of the bigger, uh, more high-profile films that were going on in New York at the time. Like, I, for example, Dee Dee Allen, you know, everyone wanted to get on a big Dee Dee Allen film, and she hired a lot of people. But I just knew that even though it might affect my career in that I would not move ahead quite as fast or might not to get to know that network, I realistically, I could not do that. And making that choice was the right thing for me. I just trusted that my career was going to move along. And I, if I kept my eye on the ball and uh, it did allow me to work and then be home at night. And the other thing, the other choice I made at one point, I, I did become a single mother. And so it was really just up to me. And it was, that was extremely challenging because most, most daycare centers don't understand the kind of hours even working till six o'clock seemed late to some to some daycare centers. Well, six p.m. was daycare. I mean, six p.m. in our world—that's barely lunchtime. Exactly, and I often had to have a supplemental babysitter after the daycare to pick up my child. I mean, everyone working now understands this routine, but I was um, I was kind of alone out there uh, in in our our world. In fact, I uh, you know there were many people that I'm I'm close with now, but I really longed actually to uh, hang out after work, go out for drinks, but I made the decision I needed to just get home and be with my daughter. And as soon as I'd get home, it was all her. Uh, I, I, I downed a very, very quick dinner and I would play with her. I would read to her. We would do crafts. We would just, I just devoted my time to her. So it was really uh, work and daughter and then 
you know, my own stuff later. But uh, I just, I think really, Zach, it, it comes down to prioritizing and being and being good with those priorities and knowing that you can't, you really can't do it all at, at certain stages of your life. And I did. And slowly my career, uh, you know, moved along and I became known as a respectable, reliable assistant. And then I was very lucky to uh, have met Peter Frank, uh, who himself had a mother who was single and an assistant editor. And he really got my situation and was extremely supportive. And just like any good mentor situation, um, you know, really, really supported me, my work and my, my life situation. So uh, I remained, I really tried to remain true to myself and my priorities. And at the same time, you know, wanted to very hard to, you know, do a, a, a good professional job. And, and that's, that worked. And Peter became sort of the editor that I hung with and we, we worked together and it was a real, real blessing that, that I met him and that we worked together. And then he was the one that, um, you know, whatever job he ran across is the jobs that we would take. And, um, so at one point we were both not working and, um, he came across a script it wasn't the kind of money that he wanted, but we both wanted to work. And I said, look, you know, none of us are really that invested in this. Um, can this be my opportunity to get a chance to be an associate editor? You know, we were working on film. Uh, and can I, can, I, can I have this opportunity now? And he said, yeah, sure. Uh, because I couldn't, I saw many of my peers break away and do these indie features for little or, low, little or no money. I just couldn't do that. I couldn't afford to do that. So this was a great opportunity for me to get paid uh, and have some chance to edit. And uh, the whole time we were doing the film, Peter gave me a bunch of stuff to cut. It was really rewarding, very gratifying. And um, But at the same time, none of us had any expectations that the film was going to do anything, which... Uh, and then, you know, we went to screenings, family and friends screenings, and we were just shocked that people were so enthusiastic about the film and laughing at places that we never thought were funny and, and it got great scores. Um, and in fact, the film was such an unexpected, uh, the, the, even, even the producer at the last minute gave the director extra points because she didn't expect the film was going to do very well either. But the film turned out to be Dirty Dancing and, uh, no one is as surprised as we all are, especially to see the legs that it has even now. So um, uh, I got lucky and uh, Peter, was, Peter was responsible for that. Well, anyone that listens to my show know that you just hit the hot button topic of the day. You use the L word. You said that you were lucky and I don't believe that. I believe that there was a whole series of events. And as you said, the very important word and theme of today's conversation is choices. There was a whole series of choices that you made, and maybe it was a bit of a, a stroke of luck in the zeitgeist of the universe, right place, right time for Dirty Dancing itself. But you made it very clear, I would like an opportunity to learn and grow, and I think this could be the opportunity. And at the time, it didn't seem like there were a whole lot of stakes. Yeah, whatever, it's kind of lower paying. And I even remember you telling me that you both had some, some very honest thoughts about the script and what it might or might not become. But there were choices made that led you to that place. And I always want to empower people 
to understand that their choices have weight and they mean something. And your choices are largely what led you to that moment. Well, I, I agree with that, Zach. And the other thing that I tell people is that if you're, you're not going to get an opportunity unless you ask for it. And that comes and, and that comes down to asking for salary, asking as an assistant to be moved up. Uh, you can kind of sit there and hope that someone notices you. And sometimes that does happen and you get and, and, and good for you. But I really feel if you want to have some kind of control over your situation, you have to be proactive. And um, I, you know, I think that uh, there are so many situations where People wonder why things aren't moving faster for themselves. And you just have to have to trust that all it takes is just to ask. And I think another thing to think about as well, I completely agree with that. We've talked about this with multiple guests now. Um, as a matter of fact, I recently uh, interviewed Andy Armaganian. I don't know if you've ever come across her before. She's a, an editor turned director that's now doing all the, the big like superhero projects with the, the Greg Berlanti universe. And that was her biggest piece of advice. If you want something, you have to be specific about it and you need to ask for it. Opportunities don't just materialize, especially in Hollywood, because everybody's fighting for them. You have to make your intentions very, very clear to people. So I think that that's a big piece of it. And especially like you said, when it comes to prioritization and making these choices, when people think to themselves, why, why is it enough happening to me? My response is, show me your calendar. What have you got in your calendar? What are you planning? that actually demonstrates that you value the time you're putting in to move yourself forwards. And usually there's nothing there, but you're prioritizing and making it clear, I'm taking these actions because I want to move forwards. And PS, also doing it as a single mom. The other thing I think that, you know, help, I, that helped me, but not only as a single mother, and I, I think that you and I would both, both advocate for this, which is that once I saw that Peter and I were aligned, I realized that I had a mentor in Peter and he was willing to be my mentor. And that is such a valuable relationship um, because uh, I think myself having been a mentor to many people, it's, it's something that I enjoy doing. I enjoy helping people out and I enjoy that, pay, that paying it forward, passing it on. And uh, so it's really a win-win situation and having a mentor can be just a terrific uh, learning experience, but also career helper. Uh, and, that, and so I think that uh, you're not, if you feel that there is a, is, is a simpatico there, um, that mentor relationship is so, so critical. And um, I don't think it's cheating. I think it's part of, part of our process. And it's actually, in spite of AVID, in spite of the, the technology and the changes in the, the, the working the cutting room procedures, mentorship still, you know, there's still a place for mentorship. It's really important. Uh, clearly, I couldn't agree more because I built an entire business around the idea of providing coaching and mentorship to people. But what I find so interesting is the fact that you said it's not cheating. And that's such a, such a curious insight for me. Because I would never assume that me trying to get ahead, meet the right people, build relationships would be cheating. But you're right in that a lot of people feel that way. I've noticed, especially in post-production, we are so isolated. And there's this pressure that, well, we have to figure it out ourselves. Everybody else has it figured out. Why don't I have it figured out yet? Well, it, it would be cheating or I don't want to bother people. They're too busy to help me. So I was going to get into this a little bit later, and we're, we're going to get back to your story, but I think this is really the crux of the conversation. If somebody wants a mentor, what does that look like? How does that work? Because I'm just going to assume 
you're way too high on the totem pole. Why in the world would you ever want to spend your time helping me? So what would mentorship look like and how do I actually find a mentor and connect with one? Well, I mean, um, I think it can happen in lots of different ways. I, um, I taught for many years at AFI and, um, I think that a lot of my students, when I was teaching them, figured, well, this is my teacher and, you know, I have this person for one year. And um, I, I think that, you know, I was able to not only bring to the table, um, I, I think, a, a really excellent course in aesthetics and, and the aesthetics of film editing, but also I tried to teach the soft skills of how you are in the cutting room and how you get along with people. But very much a part of myself is this whole idea of mentorship. So as it turned out, one of these students in my first class uh, really kind of stepped up and she stayed in touch with me and she wanted me to know what she was doing. And I, you know, we developed a relationship and I liked her proactive attitude. Um, plus she was, I just felt that she was very together. And in fact, when I was looking for an assistant on NYPD Blue at one point, I thought, I'm going to give this girl a chance. And uh, she became my assistant. I knew that there might be a little bit of a rough period because she, she in fact had not worked in a professional editing room as an assistant before. And I know that there are a lot of studios that, you know, uh, don't want you to hire people like that because they want people to just jump right in. I've had such good luck. You know, luckily that was not the situation when I was working for Stephen Bochco. I could hire who I wanted. She got, she, she, she was a very quick study. And now Ellie Nelson is a, a very, very successful editor and mother in her own right. And um, we had, we still have a long, long relationship. I've helped her get jobs. It's my pleasure to do that. And I, so I feel that when I have, so, and, and, and as it turned out, not only did I reach out to some of my former students, but they've reached out to me over the years. And it's been my pleasure to, uh, to counsel them and to help, to help them not only in their school years, but beyond that in their professional years and, and, and kind of um, give them the best of what I, my perspective, which I feel needs to be popular in this business, which is yes, have a family, have a balance, you know, be a good person, pay it forward. Uh, and if I can, if I can get some of those ideas, you know, in, in the people that I uh, have, that I associate with, um, I feel like I'm doing a good job. So I've certainly taken on mentoring my assistants. Most of my assistants have gone on to edit afterwards i don't i have i really feel it's it's part of my job to to push these people onto the next level and in fact at one point i had an assistant who um i was so happy that we were working together she was one of my former students and um she i i helped her get her first job in the business and i was very pleased that we could be working together and we worked for a month together and then she came into my cutting room and she said, Farrell, um, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is that I got an editing job. And the bad news is I really want to take it. And it means that you're not, I'm not going to be able to be your assistant. And, you know, when that kind of thing happens, the honest reaction is I feel sad because um, I, you know, when I have a great assistant, I'm really, really happy. But at the same time, I feel so happy that this person can move ahead and become an editor. And 
that person is Shannon Baker Davis, and she is doing so well right now. And I'm just so thrilled for her. And I think that's part of the job of a mentor as well, to let someone take flight. And don't just hang on because you need someone. There are plenty of good people out there that, that, that could benefit by your mentorship. And as it turned out, I, the, next, the next assistant I brought on was fantastic. And we developed a great relationship. And I was thrilled. And I was thrilled that I could help her. So it ultimately became a win-win situation. And I think that that's the other thing. It's not only the, the responsibility of the mentee to find and nurture that relationship, but I think it's also the responsibility of the mentor to encourage the next step and to push these people out, even if it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable for you. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the Topo Mat. The Topo Mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're going to invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a tilt Matt. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me Topo. That's T-O-P-O. I love the discomfort zone. I'm all about the discomfort zone. I've, if somebody is seeking it, I will provide that for them. They have to be willing to do the work, but I will absolutely provide that. And one of the things you said that I love that I just realized now, I was thinking through as you were telling the story, every single assistant editor I've had my entire career started with them reaching out to me cold and me developing a mentor-mentee relationship that had nothing to do with work. It wasn't about the gig. They reached out, they were seeking advice, they wanted to have lunch, whatever it might be. Then they would reach out a few months later, wanted to check in. Every, and it just occurred to me just now, everyone I've ever had as my assistant, that's how all the relationships started. I too am a huge believer that I'm gonna hire character and passion and enthusiasm over skills. I can fill the knowledge gaps. I can say, well, this is this button that you press. Here's how the workflow works with the caveat that if we're going on to a big project, you need to know enough on day one to not fail spectacularly. 
I'm not going to teach you what is it to be an assistant editor. They need to have enough experience, but they don't need to be an expert. They need to know just enough that they can survive day one and I could shepherd them through the rest of the process. But again, so many people assume you're just too busy. You're not going to want to help me. Who am I? What's the first step? If I said, I'm listening to this podcast and I want Farrell to be my mentor, what would you say to somebody that's feeling that way either about you or another quote unquote big name editor where they just feel intimidated and they don't know how to start? Well, I would say the first step is to write an email um, and, and you have to reach out, you have to touch base. And uh, then we start a little conversation. I, you know, I, and we see, you know, I, I find out what, what you're about and uh, we see if there's, there's some, you know, most people that reach out to me, I, in the old days, I would have coffee. Uh, it's, a, it's a different reality now. Um, and we would chat and, um, you know, I, I, really like helping out new people in the business and um, we take it from there. So I think that the the outreach process is so important. It's a, it's a very undervalued skill and an art form. As we've talked about, uh, you like to emphasize the soft skills. It's not just about, do I know the workflow? Do I know Avid? Can I deal with the EDL manager and with exports? To me, that's such a small minority percentage of all of the skills that are so super important to actually make it in the business. What are some of the other soft skills that you think people that want to be in the edit room at your level don't even know that they don't know? I think that they don't know how much people skills are critical in the for, editing For room. editors, really? Editors <laughs> and people skills, what are those? Yeah, right. I mean, one of the things that we would do at AFI, which which um, basically mimics a professional setup so that the, uh, the, the all the fellows start out uh, they, they edit projects with, with teams. So the editors edit and the writers write and the producers produce and the directors direct. And they, over the course of the year, they've edited a bunch of these things. So at the end of the year, I would say to people, what was the biggest surprise for you that you didn't expect coming in? And to a one, they would say, I never realized how much editing involves getting along with people. <laughs> it's not just knowing how to make a match cut. It's not just knowing how to do the avid. It's so much. Be, and, and the other thing that, that and, and so getting along with people is, is also knowing how to get your point across, but getting it in a way that's not antagonistic. It's knowing when to talk, when not to talk. It's knowing how to nurture your director and, and because you're, you're trying to bring the best out of their work. Uh, it's not a competition. Um, the editor has to understand what their role in the process is. We are kind of chameleons. We have to sort of change our personalities depend on, depending on who the people we're working with are. Uh, and, um, and, and that, that is a, in order to get something done, uh, get a film to, from start to finish, you've got to be able to navigate the discussion process, you can put together a cut, but if that's not what the director has in mind and the director has all kinds of changes, um, you're going to have to very uh, negotiate in a very diplomatic way what they need, what will work for the film. The director could do all these changes and it really might not be working. And then you have to figure out, well, how do I convince this person uh, in a way that's not going to antagonize and in a way that's not going to subvert the process that this might be a better solution. So one of the things that we would talk about in class is how, literally how you sort of say that kind of thing. What are strategies for doing that? Um, but I also think, for example, as an assistant, 
you want to be mindful of that too. Like you don't want to be the person in the room that's like the smartest person in the room raising their hand. Like I have the answer, I have the answer, dominating the conversation. An assistant maybe can talk to the editor afterward and say, you know, what about this idea? Or what about, you know, you know, I, I, I have, I have a possible solution for that. Let me show you, but you don't want to be the assistant who is dominating the conversation in the room because you're not going to be looked upon well. Um, they're, they're really, you know, per, there are people that have managed to uh, uh, get careers by being, by being that person, but generally it's not, it's not, um, you just save the, save your smart comments for an appropriate time and they will be appreciated and you will be appreciated. I think one of the most important things for people to understand about this is if you had said the, the, the most vital skill for being a good assistant or being a good editor is you must know Avid. Great. Well, then I go to LinkedIn Learning or I go to LarryJordan.com and I've got a whole bunch of videos and it's going to show me how to do it. I can't go online and sit in the comfort of my pajamas and learn how to manage a room. I can't learn how to build these relationships and how to answer questions on the fly or deal with it politically and diplomatically when I'm given the worst note ever. Those are skills that you have to learn. The only way, in my opinion, you can actually learn them is via mentorship. Otherwise, you're stuck between the rock and the hard place of, I need the experience to get the experience, right? You, there, there's just no way to, to be able to get in the room unless you have the skills, but you need the skills to get in the room. So it just kind of brings us back to the same conversation. You need a mentor. You need somebody that's willing to let you sit in the room or be the assistant to you being the editor, whatever it might be. You can only learn this stuff on the job. There's no other way that I know to learn this. But the other thing I would suggest to people too, if you are in the union, if you've made it that far, but you feel like, well, I'm on the roster, but I don't know what's the next step. The union has, the networking is so important, whether it's their, their assistant editor, you know, meetup groups, I'm sure there's stuff going on on Zoom right now. There are committees in the union that are welcoming to, to new members. And it is, it is, it is by by circulating yourself around. I mean, it's one thing to meet one person, and and but you know that's just that's just one person. Um, and uh, the way these things, the way things are these days, uh, you know, work is not like it used to be when before before the pandemic. So I think that the the wider net you throw in terms of meeting other people and meeting other assistants, uh, and then you know putting asking, well, what's going on with you? What, what do you know about their Facebook groups? Uh, the wider the net, the, the better in terms of broadening your chances of, of something really clicking. Yep. And I both agree and disagree with that. And I'm going to explain why I both agree and I disagree. I think you should cast as wide a net as possible, but it needs to be a very specific net. I think the, the fallacy is that most people think it's the shotgun approach. If we were to think about all of the networking in the world as one conference hall of 500 people, the approach is often, I need to go in there, I need to chit chat with as many people as possible, I'm gonna hand them my business card, Ugh, fingers crossed, somebody's gonna respond and I'm gonna get a call. Conversely, I'm a big believer and you go into the room and you find the one person you know you can provide the most value to, they can provide the most value to you and return and build a long-term relationship then rinse and repeat that. And I think for someone that doesn't know anyone, yeah, just start by reaching out and connecting. But as an extreme introvert that has been socially distancing at the Olympic level for 15 years now, 
I don't really enjoy going to the in-person events and chit-chatting and just meeting people. I know that some people, a lot of people love that. I don't, but I'll go to them if I know I can find the right people. But if you go to just those, your network by default is whomever decides to show up any given evening. And I know that if you're working and it's on a big film, you're probably not going to be at an MPEG mixer Wednesday at 6.30 p.m., so I feel like I need to be more specific and instead of the shotgun approach, take the sniper approach. I know after listening to today's podcast, Farrell Levy is the one person that's going to understand me and I need to reach out to her or whomever it might be, right? I don't, I don't want you to all of a sudden get 150 outreach emails. But the point being that if you identify somebody that you fit with, like you said, just ask, reach out to them, but cast a wide net of reaching out to the right people. That's at least my philosophy. You know, the other thing that I've noticed with uh, some of my former students who have reached out to big editors and, and done that very approach is that it takes persistence. But, you know, it takes persistence, period. So you might as well get used to it. Uh, because if you have this goal and, and you want to break in, it's, it, you, it, you know, everyone's, not everyone works on a big feature right away. I mean, you know, everyone has their little bitty steps that they brought them where they are. So I know that this one, this one assistant that, um, who's now working for this big editor wrote many letters and the editor was busy because he was working on big features. And he said, I can't get to you right now, but I will just stay in touch. And it is that persistence because people are busy. People have things that are going on, but people notice if you are persistent and that's points in your favor. Uh, so that, you know, even though it's harder in a way, it's its own test. And I, I, yes. And I think that the, the components that are really important to understand as a caveat, everything you said is correct, but the persistence also has to come with patience because if you're not patient and you're incessantly bothering them, well, then you can turn them off and turn them away. Cause it's like, listen, I'm busy. I get it. I know you want to connect. You got to you got to be willing to kind of play on my schedule a little bit. Those that aren't willing to, I'm probably not willing to give the back and forth. My first two editing mentors were Dodie Dorn and Walter Murch. That mm -hmm. didn't happen by accident and it certainly didn't happen overnight. One of them took a year, one of them took multiple years, but I was able to make those connections. Now Dodie and I have a, a reciprocal mentor mentee relationship where now she reaches out to me all the time and says, oh, I'm doing this with my health and the standing desk. And so I'm her like fitness and health mentor. And she's my editing and industry mentor. And it was the same thing with Walter where I reached out to him after I had read, um, uh, what was it? Like um, it was, no, it was behind the scene. That was the one that got me. I mean, obviously I had, seen, had read in the blink of an eye in the conversations, but the one I really related to was behind the scene, which is all about workflow and nitty gritty and all the stuff that I really enjoy. And I just continually, but politely reached out to him until we finally connected. And I started to talk to him about the standing desk and how he inspired me. And then we ended up doing a just short of two hour podcast interview talking about work and health and life and the industry and all that other stuff. But it takes a long time and so many people feel like I sent the email, I didn't get a response. Ugh, they just don't want to help me. And it, you, you got to play the long game with this. Exactly. Yeah. So I want to go back to this idea of choices. We talked about this at the beginning and making choices. And as a parent myself, I had to make the choice fairly early in my career where I realized the trajectory that I was on, hoping to be the next Walter Murch someday, work on the big films, win all the Oscars. I think a lot of people have that image. I had just had my first son and I was looking at these two things and I said, I can't be a good father at this time and also pursue this path with the amount of time that it's going to require of me. It doesn't mean that over the course of my career, it's not possible, 
But I kept thinking to myself, I only get one chance to be around my kids when they're this young and they're growing. There's always going to be another film. So let's go all the way back to when you were just a single mom, just starting your career uh, and realizing this is really the only shot that I have. And there were a lot of choices that you had to make throughout that process. Because I have a lot of clients that come to me that are female, that have children that have said, I can't work in scripted. There's just no way I'm going to be able to work. Nobody can figure it out. And I know that you have. So let's talk about a lot of the deeper emotions and choices that happen just beyond the, the stuff in the industry. Well, I do think that um, one, one of the changes that I have, as I said, I was, I was lucky that, that I worked with people. I, and I say lucky because I did have one job in that period where I really needed to work. And this is going to happen to everybody. You are going to, you, you can't control everything. And sometimes you just need to work. And I didn't totally vet the job. It turned out to be the most horrendous job. I was literally, luckily, my parents were able to take my daughter, but I was literally working 27 hours at a time. Uh, I was making great money, but it was, it was, just a horrible, horrible schedule, you know, where there'd be many days when I would be working really round the clock and I wouldn't be able to come home. And like I said, the support system is really, really critical. For some people, that's, that's hard. But I do think that if, you, if you're a woman and you have a supportive husband who is, has the flexibility in his schedule, or if you have parents around, or if you have a great uh, babysitter, um, that, that, that is, is really critical. But this one job just, uh, really confirmed to me that what was more important? What was the, the time? I was glad that I made the money. I was able to buy a house off of the money that I made as an assistant on that job. However, when I think about a lot of the films and look, we all need to work this, this is a great industry, but there are a lot of films out there that or television shows that, in the long run, you know, the, the content or whatever are not that great. And what's, what is the balance? You know, is it more important for me to work on something that, and, and work long hours and sap my energy, not be able to be with family, just to kind of work on something? Where, where, what does it mean? Or can I work on something that, um, this, when I started, when I came to LA, I was intending to be a feature editor because that's kind of where I had come from in, in, in uh, New York. And I started uh, working on free things. And because even though I had this dirty dancing credit, I think it had to do with the fact that I was a woman, actually. I wasn't taken quite as seriously. So I pretty much had to start all over again, sinking dailies and doing little editing jobs. But I finally got a break with Stephen Bochco. And uh, at that very time, I had the choice between a, a low-budget feature and working for Stephen Bochco. And I, I have just, I loved Stephen Bochco. I loved his television shows, and I'd heard that he was very loyal, which meant potentially longer range work. So I gave up the feature job, and I took the job at Bochco. And not only did it turn out that these guys all had families and all kind of worked their families into their lives. But I learned like, oh, television schedules are a lot different than feature schedules. There's a, they, there was a certain regularity to them. I had always thought, gee, it'd be great to be a teacher and know that you have the summers off. And suddenly, like I'm working in an environment where because the show got repeated, I had a summer off. And I very was careful with my budgeting 
And I just decided I'm not going to find a job during the summertime. I'm going to be with my family. And not only that, but the, the, the people that I was working for were very supportive of having families. So I realized that like I was in a good situation. I wasn't working on a feature, but I was working on a show that I, that I loved, that people loved, that had meaning. And I was able to have that balance, which was keeping me sane. And I did have colleagues on the show that would leave because they were working on a successful show and they, maybe they got a feature and that was, it was their launching point. But for me personally, I felt like I have that balance that I need. I'm able to have my family. I since I then had another child. I'm working on a job that I love. And I, I wrote it out to the very, very end. And I, I thought I'm taking a chance. I don't know, you know, I'm not building up a lot of credits over the course of that 15 years that I was with that one company. They did offer me a lot of opportunities, including directing, which was, which was fantastic. Um, and, but I took a chance that my career would still be able to be viable. And that again was a choice, but it was, it made me happy. I did not feel burned out. I did not feel like I, I uh, didn't have time for my family. And, and I felt like a whole person. And that was what, what confirmed that that was a direction that I wanted to take. So from then on, then I, I did actually have lots of opportunities after that because I worked with so many people and, my, and I had a reputation. Uh, but when I had these choices, I also turned things down. If I thought it was going to take too many hours, um, or, or, or work, I didn't want, really want to work during the summertime, even though a job seemed interesting, I, I, I turned it down. And turning down jobs is scary um, because you want to make sure that you have another one. But I, I, you just have to trust that it's going to happen if you're, if you, and, and you do a good job. I said, I have to focus on doing the best job I can because when I turn a job down, I want to know that my reputation is intact. So I think that that's the other risk. It's risky. You have to take, be willing to turn stuff down in order to maintain the, um, th that, the family balance. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creative.
creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Well, it's risky and it's uncomfortable coming back to this idea of like always seeking comfort versus being willing to embrace the discomforts. It's risky. And I think that one of the the most one of the most common words that I find is synonymous with people that say that they chronically experience burnout, because I've worked with people that deal with this over and over and over. Burnout is always connected to the word yes. I constantly say yes over and over and over. Well, why don't you just say no? Logically, it makes sense. They're like, because I can't. Why not? Because I'm afraid. Afraid of what? I'm never going to work again. I'm not going to be able to pay my bills. There's, there's no level of preparation. There's no safety net that gives them the freedom to make those choices. And not having those choices is what leads to burnout. And you had told me offline, you've also alluded to here, that there were some pretty big projects that came your way during those summer hiatuses. And I'm wondering, are there any that came about where you're like, oh, man, I could have had my name on that. I have. And uh, I think, you know, I think it's a both and, you know, I think there's it's never like I'm going to say uh, there's always like, wow, I could have had this or I could have done that. Yes, there's that. But bottom line, I really feel comfortable in the choices that I make. And and that's that's just you have to live with that. And I, I'm, it, it's not living with it, it with reg- constant regret. I don't you know, I don't live with regret. Uh, it, it's kind of a nice, you know, n- nice to know that that potentially could have happened and it would have been fun working on certain jobs and certain jobs had have, have a certain prestige and whatever, but I really will never regret choices that I made for my family. Um, it, it, because it, love is the ultimate thing that counts, you know, it's, uh, that's what you're going to go to the grave with. And, um, I, I really believe that, uh, you know, you can still have some great jobs and some great professional relationships. It's there's there's lots down the pike. And so, you know, those opportunities, yeah, they happen, but there are other things that happen too. And and um there's other there's always other opportunities. I don't regret those choices. And I'm guessing there's never a point where you say, Oh, in hindsight, I would totally give up all this time for with my daughter just to have that one credit in the money. No. No, I wouldn't. And, and you know, uh, as a result, maybe I don't have some of those, some of the sexy credits that, that might have looked better, but uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a happy person. I'm a happy person. And uh, I, I, I think that it, it, it's easier now for, for women to, to have the support. Not that I didn't have support, but I see, uh, look, I think it's great that, that women and moms are taking on these big jobs, are taking on you know, big action fe- features, uh, just they're, they're, they're much more in, in the, uh, in the le- editing population than they were before. Um, but I, I know myself, I've always felt that television, that the, that the hours and the regularity offered me, uh, a, um, a much more, um, controlled, lifestyle. And I know I've, I've, I'm happily, I, some of my former male students have come to me and said, you know, I just worked as an assistant on this big feature and it was such, so great. And I was out of town. I'm so glad that I worked on it, but I'm thinking of having a family now and I don't know how I'm going to do that. And, and I, I, I say, look, you know, 
with Netflix and all these television platforms, it's the, the landscape has changed. There's some pretty great things going on in the television world and, and often much more character driven, much more uh, with much more story and interesting things going on. So consider television and don't think of yourself as less than if you're if you're doing that. You know, you can be proud of the work that you did and also proud that you uh, had a good life. So I have one student. She knows who she is. She's listening. She's probably already cringing like, oh, my God, I can't believe he's going to talk about this. I'm not going to use her name, but she knows who she is. She's a successful editor, but she is terrified of making the jump into scripted because she's also a really good mom, and she doesn't think that she can do both well. If she wanted to edit the next Star Wars film, I'd say that's probably going to be a challenge. But she's feeling the same amount of weight and guilt and pressure about making the transition into scripted. And again, this is somebody at a high level that's doing what she's doing, but there's this underlying fear that I don't think I can be a good mom and I can edit scripted television and make the transition. What would you well, say? One of, the things that, one of the things that I say to anybody, but particularly people with, parent, with kids, is I think that, you know, granted, initially you can't always uh, choose your jobs. But if you have any way of choosing your job, I would really vet the people that you're working with, whether it's first the editor, that they understand your situation, that they are simpatico, and that if you have to take your child to a doctor's appointment, they're going to be cool with that. And I think more and more people are. Uh, I think that a post-production supervisor that understands that and understands family is and understands people's needs, that is very important too. Um, and certainly, you know, directors, producers, um, if, you know, initially, I would say for one thing, yes, television is much more, uh, much more of a uh, compatible situation with parenthood. But I think her next step would be to also start talking to people uh, once jobs are available and, and find, find out if something comes up, does this seem like it'll be family friendly? Uh, or friendly to someone that that had that is a parent, um, and maybe initially you turn that down. But when you do find an editor who understands uh, and his and, and is willing to uh, you know to work with you as a parent because you can, it's not that difficult. Then you go for it. But I do think that it, it, there's a certain extra level of of research that a working parent, uh, particularly, I even say it as an editor. Uh, but particularly as an assistant that you should do to protect yourself and to make the experience as workable as possible, given your situation. Because as, as I said, in, in our careers, there, we're always going to have a few really, really difficult, challenging situations, but you want to try to set things up at least initially that um, to, be, to be friendly to parenting. I would agree with all of that. And just to clarify one thing, she is actually an editor. And she's even at the ace level editor, just not in the scripted world. So there's already a lot of experience. So I think replace the word editor with showrunner or director or EP, and it's going to be the same conversation. But this is something that I talked about in a podcast extensively. I don't remember the exact episode number. We'll put it in the show notes. But how I got my job on Cobra Kai, I talked about how when I identified the show, I said, I would love to cut the show, but only if it aligns with my lifestyle needs. My biggest fear... Well, and when I discovered it at the time, it was a season one YouTube show. 
I didn't have a whole lot of competition. Now it's the biggest show on Netflix and everybody's watching it and talking about it. But two, three years ago, it was like, oh, it's that weird karate kid thing on YouTube. Yeah, whatever. But as soon as I saw it, I said, this is my dream job, but only if I can still be a parent. If these guys are tyrants and it's nights and it's weekends and it's, I've got a meeting and I'm not going to be able to come into the edit bay until 10 PM. So not worth it. Got to meet my lifestyle needs. The only way to find out is I went into my interview and it became their interview. Sure. I talked about my process and everything else, but it was more, what's your process? What are the expectations? When do you expect me to be there? And they all said, we've got kids. We want to be out the door. I'm like, oh my God, this is it. But you have to ask those questions and put yourself out there. So what are your criteria? What is it? What's the difference between, yes, I can make this work versus, nope, this is a deal breaker. One of, one of my big criteria is I always ask, where's the cutting room? And if it's near my house, that is a, a, that is really, really helpful because let's face it, commuting time uh, it can, can take hours out of your time with your family. If, if, it, if, it, if it's near the house, that, that's, that's big points. But then the other, the other thing is I, I too will check out, well, do you anticipate long hours on the show? Uh, and, uh, you know, because I have a family and not only, you know, they'll be honest, uh, or they try to be sometimes they, they, they hedge on that. Uh, but you try to get a vibe on the hour situation. And then you also, I think you also, like you said, if, if people are like, we have families too. We totally get it. Then you, you feel much, much more supported and it's a much more, uh, and, and honestly, as I started to say earlier, this is a relatively new phenomenon, you know, having showrunners that have families and for whom family is important too. That was not the case uh, for, for so many years. And uh, now you have a lot of women that want to change the culture in their cutting room, women showrunners who themselves have kids. Uh, and that is a big plus. But I, I recently had a, had a job interview with someone. And uh, again, it wasn't about the show. The interview just became about the vibe. And the, by the end of the interview, I thought to myself, I like this guy so much. I just, I just want to work with him. And so I think if you can, if you get that kind of very, and, and the job work worked out and it turned out to be a great job, but if you can get that kind of vibe going and sometimes you sense like, mm, I don't think this is going to be right. And that becomes difficult because if you feel, if you get the sense that they might want you, but this is not going to work out for your situation, that becomes one of those things. Well, do I say yes? Or do I stick with my guns and knowing that this could be uh, make, make me and everybody else around me unhappy. Uh, but then sometimes, you know, the other thing I say is that if you don't get a job, everyone wants to ace the interview. But if you don't get the interview, I always say, you know what? It was just as well. It was meant to be. Because most likely, it's, and I've heard you say this before, it's like a marriage. You know, and every, every relationship that you're on with, with, an, with, a, with a show is one where you feel like you, you, can, you can get along or you can disagree, but you can, you can, it can, it's longer term. So if that marriage isn't going to work out, just, just see it as a good thing. Well, and it's funny because you bring up the term marriage and we're talking about marriage and kids. You wouldn't want to get into a marriage with somebody, but not express beforehand. I want a family. I don't want a family. Are you crazy? Well, that clearly that marriage isn't going to work, but it requires the communication beforehand. 
And if that communication doesn't happen, well, then things fall apart. And I feel if those expectations are not clearly communicated at the interview stage, everybody eventually is going to be in a world of hurt in one way or another. But there's one other component of this that I want to dig into a little bit deeper that I think is so important, especially for the the mom that's listening to this right now. You alluded to this very early in the interview, but you said one of the first things I'll say to them in the interview is, well, I'm a mom and family is important to me. But there are a lot of people very, very scared to say that because as soon as they come out of the closet, like you said, they might not get the job. Do you feel that there's ever been a portion in your career where you outed yourself, so to speak, and you didn't get the job specifically because of that? Is that fear warranted? Uh, well, I think that you know, early in my career, it was much more of a no-no. Uh, I think now it's more accepted. Uh, and, and I would hope that if you say, and, and there's a possibility you might not get the job. And that's why I said that earlier. I said, if you don't get the job, it's probably for the best because, um, we have all been on jobs where we have been totally miserable and it, it can take not only a toll on the family, but it can take a physical toll on your health, physical and mental toll. So I feel that if you do put it out there, uh, and, and you're not, you know, yes, it's discrimination on their part, but at the same time, it's probably for the best um, because, uh, and, and, and let's face it, there are jobs where people are working crazy long hours and uh, people do it and people with families do it. And if you have the support system and it's okay with you, great. I'm, I'm not, you know, saying you shouldn't do that, but if that's not what you want, then, then I feel like if in that interview, they feel that this is not going to work out. It's really for the best. Yeah, I mean, it's it's twofold. You're right. Number one, how dare they? That sh- this shouldn't be a reality. You shouldn't get turned down or pushed away just because you're a parent. That's the reality that we live in. Some people are just going to do that. And there's just this anger and resentment, like how dare I not be looked at because of my skills or my experience. It's I'm labeled as a parent. But at the end of the day, even though that does suck and it shouldn't be that way, it's kind of a blessing in disguise. Do you want to work with somebody in the room for 16 hours a day for eight months that's just going to push you away and discriminate against you? Like, that's just not cool. And there's there's a lot more to the politics of we need to do something more about it and reduce the discrimination. But at the end of the day, if it's just you personally, like good riddance, thank God that didn't happen. Right. I think that that's really, really important to recognize that it wasn't an opportunity. You thought it was an opportunity, but it wasn't. And I know that you've had many, many students. I'm sure you've coached them through many interviews and situations like this. And I'll, I'll share a tip that I often give people that are students of mine, and you might have additional ones. But a very common question when an opportunity comes along is how much are they going to pay? The question I always ask is what is the cost of taking this job? That's what I ask first. What's the cost of working on a show like Cobra Kai? The cost is I'm going to be in my car for two to three hours a day. The cost is I'm probably going to miss some bedtimes. I might even miss a, a, a spring sing or two. There are the whole list of things, but then I ask myself, is it worth the benefits short-term, long-term? And I realize the benefits outweigh the costs, but there have been a lot of jobs where people would, they would smack me upside the head. How could you have ever said no to that? Because it costs too much. What do you mean it costs too much? What does that even mean? But I'm always looking at the cost of taking an opportunity, and I feel so few people do that. Yeah, I don't. I don't frame it that way. I don't frame it in terms of cost. But certainly, yes. I mean, that is con- as a parent, that constantly runs through my head. It's not just an automatic like work. There's there's so many other considerations, and I think that 
for the for the for our future health as a, as a civilization. I mean, I know you know in line with your petition to the, to the industry. I know this is a very this is a business, and it's a very successful business. And um, uh, but at the same time, uh, I think as workers in this business, if we can push that push that rock just a little bit further in the direction of, of healthy lifestyles in terms of family and in terms of lifestyle too. I mean, you also want to have a little bit of time to be healthy yourself. You want to have a little bit of time to exercise. You want to have a little bit of time for, for, for that kind of thing as well. Uh, I think that I feel it's, it's a, it's a bigger, longer, a longer goal. Um, it's, it's how are we going to, it, for, for our kids and their kids, what kind of message are we going to send to them? Which is, you know, work is important. And, and I, I say to my two daughters, I'm so glad that you both have work that, you, that engage you and that it's, it's not just a job for you, as, as I have felt all along about editing. But at the same time, let's, you know, not, it, it's not the be all and end all. It's empty if, if we don't have love and family and relationships in our lives. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you clearly because you and I are, uh, we're preaching to the same choir. And when we talk about costs, the final thing I want to say about this is everybody says the same thing. Being healthy costs money. It's expensive. If I want to be healthy, that means I have to, the, one of the costs is time. I have to sleep more. I have to exercise more. Organic foods are healthier than cheap foods. Eating, you know, high quality meats is more expensive than having dinty more beef stew and Doritos, which by the way, was what I used to eat for dinner when I had no money. So I've been there. I, I understand what that's like. The only thing that's, uh, that costs more than being healthy now is the cost that you're going to pay for it later. So you can either pay for your health now or you can pay for it later when it's going to be way more expensive and you're so far down the line that it's almost reversible. So when it comes to all these things, yes, there is a cost that comes with it, but you're going to have to pay for it at some point. So why not pay for it now and get the higher quality of life out of it? That's that's those are my two cents. Well, but in terms of kids, too, there's really sort of no paying for it later. I mean, I think that you either like enjoy your kids as they're growing up or you go, what happened? Mm -hmm. I miss that. And I've heard uh, I've heard people that have said before and I've heard it secondhand, um, but their rationale is, man, my kids are going to have an amazing college fund. My thinking is, I bet they'd love to have a parent too. Yeah, I mean, I that's that's the other thing in terms of cost. I have specifically, uh, I keep my my lifestyle is relatively simple. I have don't have to have all the bells and whistles and all the stuff because, uh, I mean, even though I, you know, are are we're comfortable. I don't drive a fancy car. I don't, you know, I don't have two homes. I don't, you know, there's a lot of things that I don't have because it was more important for me to live on a little less and have that time. And that's a choice you make too. But I, I personally feel that it's been a good choice for me, you know, uh, not necessarily having all the money, the most money ever, but having the time. I know this is a subject you're very passionate about. I am too. We could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. I don't know how we've gotten to the point where we did already. I want to be respectful of your time, but is there anything else that we haven't talked about or that I haven't asked that's really important for you to share before we go today? Well, one thing I just want, again, I talk about how uh, times are, are different now than when it, I remember when I was, uh, you know, when my kids were little, I would seek out other working mothers and I'd say, how do you do it? What schools do you go to? You know, how, how do you manage childcare? And I was recently at a, a, a women's a committee uh, forum 
uh, with the union. And what, what I noticed was that people are still asking those questions, but there's so many more people and there's so many more uh, Facebook groups and, and online groups and so much, so many more avenues for whether it's just support groups but people, so many more people in that situation. And uh, I think that, you know, the more working parents we, and whether it be men and women who care about that balance we have in our union, the better it's going to be for, for all of us. So I, I'm really glad that people are, are having kids, people are building these support groups and, um, uh, and, and keep on fighting for that for that balance. It's 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 a great thing. Well, it goes back to everything we talked about near the beginning. It's all about the fact that you are not doing this alone. There are a lot of other people out there that can help you do this. You can seek the guidance, seek the mentorship, seek the support groups. If anybody wanted to connect with you because you've just totally inspired them to figure all this out and reach out, how would somebody contact you? Uh, via my email. Don't worry, you're not going to get 150 or 200 emails. But I know that there's one or two that this could absolutely change their life. They're going to reach out to you. They're going to say the you know all the things we've talked about here. And my hope is they can provide value to you. You can provide value to them. But I want to make sure people feel like, oh, that was great. But oh, how do I find her? And she's too big. And I don't know if I can connect with her. And I'm just embarrassed. And I don't want to bother her. I want to eliminate that barrier for everybody listening right now. Well, I just hope that, you know, that people, uh, you know, when you're a working mom uh, or a working dad, you know, uh, it, it can be it can be difficult. And I just want it. I want I hope that I can provide encouragement in that department. I have no doubt that you can provide encouragement in then some. This has been a tremendous pleasure for me. I've learned several amazing new insights. I'm hoping that everybody else that has uh, listened is learning things as well. Uh, it means a lot to me that you were uh, able to come on the call today and provide your time and your expertise. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Zach. As a working parent, I'm happy to represent. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even gonna send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.